Hi, this is the Story of London podcast, a show dedicated to giving a narrative account of this mighty city from its formation by the Romans until, well, roughly the present day. London has been witness to many great rulers and potentates, kings and queens, in whose body rested the supposed blessing of the Creator himself, the divine right to rule over all who resided within the city. It has also seen lower-born men and women, civic leaders who would emerge from their own ranks of humble resident, rising to receive gravitas and importance, a benediction of power from their peers, blessing their names at the time. London has always known the powerful. They are as familiar and as common upon its streets as the poor and disenfranchised are. But within the chronicle of this city, amidst its cycle of growth and expansion and contraction and decline, there comes those leaders whose importance transcends their brief time upon this mortal coil. They become pivotal, not just to their contemporaries, but also to those who would to come later. They are the people who changed the city and left their mark upon it in ways that transcend time if not space. We have already met one of these, I believe. For me, Wolf Hera of Mercia, the king who first placed London under Mercian domination in the last century, is marked for such attention, I believe. His legacy upon London is obviously profound. And ahead of us, many centuries from this part of the story, lie figures like Alfred the Great or Henry VIII, Rulers whose impact on London was profound and changed its story forever. But it is now in this tale of the city that we meet a much overlooked figure. A name from the past whose gravitas has been lost with the passing of the centuries. He was a giant of a king whose importance has faded into the myths of time passing. But whose impact upon Britain and especially upon London was significant beyond all reasonable measure. The story of London now covers the period between the 730s and 830 of the Common Era as we cover the era of the most important of the Mercian kings and overlords of London and the aftermath of his rule. Welcome to Offer's Emporium. To set our scene then, and to make sure we're all upon the same page in our tale, we are discussing the story of London. We leap forward a few decades from when we last left our story in the last chapter, from the year 730 to about the year 770 or so. We are in Ludenwick, London Market. It sits upon a bend in the River Thames, its border delineated clearly on one side by the River Fleet. Now beyond the River Fleet, about a mile away to the east, sits the ruins of the old Roman settlement, Londinium. Those old ruins had had years of use by now. 
Much of the debris has been cleared out, but the residents of Ludenwick will use it to have their town assemblies in. And they'll also keep large numbers of animals to be readied for slaughter, and they would worship within at least one church located within its walls. But no one lives there. Behind it still standing but weaker walls, whose origins in the reign of the Emperor Commodus are now long lost to the residents, it's mostly utilised for farming and those other purposes. No, they live in Ludenwick, a dynamic and successful market town. Under the oversight of the Mercian kings, especially the long-lived Aethelbald, it has become more than just a place where the poor residents of local hamlets could sell their excess wheat and barley or barter winter stores for a spare pig. It has evolved, growing into something more. It was, as the Venerable Bede himself described it, an emporium. Here goods from across the region could find ready buyers, yes, but also goods from further afield. From downriver and upriver, Ludenwick became the centre of gravity for many traders, being the place where they could both sell their products and buy new ones. Such a market inevitably drew foreign traders from the continent, and such was the volume of trade this birthed that developed an infrastructure to support it. Tolls needed to be charged, taxes needed to be insisted upon, Men needed to enforce said systems. A new level of sophistication, of bureaucratic necessity, was being born in Ludenwick. As the number of customers grew, so did also the number of services these new customers required. It's one thing to be a market for villagers a half-day's walk away, but to be a market for those who have spent days or even weeks to arrive at, well, those customers would need places to sleep, food to eat, entertainment to be had. After all, these patrons could afford it. And those of Ludenwick who could supply such services, who could offer a roofed accommodation or a warm and wholesome meal, or who could offer nightly companionship on a cold evening, oh, they would find steady, almost constant employment. And around them, the growing market would then allow other specialisms emerge. Craftsmen could establish permanent homes within Ludenwick, knowing there was enough custom coming to them, rather than them having to make a speculative pilgrimage to find said customers. But please do not picture some beautiful and pristine model of Saxon wholesome living. This is not a film set with residents standing around with carefully placed and aesthetically pleasing muddy smears on their perfect skin and shining white teeth. This is the 8th century we are talking about. Ludenwick was filthy, mud-covered and filled with human waste and detritus, there was no centrally planned local authority insisting on zoning regulations here. Homes and houses were built cheek by jowl, next door and almost on top of one another. A metal worker, who may annoy his neighbours by keeping them awake with the constant noise and hammering, 
might find himself next to a tanner whose need to soak cowhide in vast vats of pungent urine would flood all of them with the overwhelming ammonia stench. And heaven help everyone if fire were to break out amidst those straw-roofed buildings. And yet this emporium was also the source of many splendid things. Consider ships crowded on the Thames foreshore, tied off against crude jetties, their goods ferried by a legion of porters, who themselves are indicative that Ludenwick was now large enough to supply that most important of urban population, general labourers. That foreshore would be the source of those most valued commodities, precious and fragile items made from glass, pungent and powerful wines from the continent, fine cloth for those who could afford better than homespun wool, bullion in the form of gold and silver, and around those items, of course, lest we forget, the slaves. Ah, yes. We must briefly lift the curtain here to reveal an aspect of early medieval society that no one really likes to talk about, the buying and selling of slaves. This was, at the time, a successful and legitimate business. We know slavery was practiced right across Western Europe, with everyone from local kings to local bishops being part of a continent-spanning network of the buyers and sellers of human beings. Of course, slavery at this time was not based on race. The slaves for sale in Ludenwick looked no different than the people buying them. It's easy in the tale of Britain to try and explain away this trade in human flesh as being a narrative that suggests the Anglo-Saxons were buying and selling the native Britons with this popular belief that slavery in this time was focused almost exclusively upon the cruel exploitation of the Welsh by the Anglo-Saxons. Yet some historians have found that the Welsh profited from the trade, acting as slave traders, moving humans from their many kingdoms to the Anglo-Saxon ones, wherein those people would be used to work the fields if they were lucky, or for sexual exploitation if they were young and unlucky. But it must be said, no Anglo-Saxon nation, indeed no nation in Europe, was free from the contagion of having been a slaving one, even if their economy didn't depend on those poor souls. While certainly not carried out at the industrial level we would see in future centuries, if we today look back on all nations who profited from slaving with contempt, see them as cruel, inhuman and evil, then we must add every one of the nations of Europe in the 8th century to this list. But that is the harsh truth of history. It exists irrespective of our moral sensibilities. The people we condemn are long dead and don't care what we think about them. And all this does is really remind us there has never been a utopia in the past. Not here, not anywhere, not ever. This, then, is the Ludenwick that came under the dominionship of a man called Offer of Mercia. To me, he is arguably the most dynamic, 
most exciting and most important figure of pre-Viking English history. He's the first ruler of these islands to impact upon the wider European stage. My aim is not to present a biography of this man. We need to focus upon London, after all. Yet the truth is I could give hours over to his life story and still not do it justice. It's worth repeating again my warning I will make many times ahead as well. Everything you hear is my opinion as a writer and historian, editorialising to suit my narrative. So in ignoring the myriad details about Offer of Mercia and his rise in power and of the politics and events that go with it, please note it is only because... This is not the story of Offa. We must remain focused as much as we can upon the city, seeing only the glories of his reign reflected darkly upon Ludenwick. As such, I'm not going to focus at all on Offa's dyke, the gigantic earthworks he may or may not have erected to delineate the border between Mercia and the fractious kingdoms of Wales, or to be precise, the specifically fractious kingdom of Quawis. And I must ignore the wider policies that saw him over the decades of his rule dominate and subjugate the English kingdoms of the south, either annexing some parts like he did to Kent or making sure compliant kings rule traditional rivals like he did to Wessex. Our focus remains upon that settlement besides the Thames. But this focus does give me the excuse to discuss the wider implications of his reign, because we need to briefly touch upon his impact upon the European stage. We know that at the time Offa ruled Mercia, across the English Channel, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, had arisen to rule the vast Frankish kingdoms and was only a few years away from being made Emperor of the Carolingian Empire. Now, well, some historians would like to say that Offa was England's Charlemagne, and he wasn't, he never united the land, and other historians downplay any comparison because it messes with their idea that the kings of Wessex were the only true great rulers. The truth is, Charlemagne did see Offa as a worthy equal in terms of simply being the king of a powerful and organised state. Offa was the peer of a man who in many ways is seemingly beyond having peers. That alone would warrant Offa's status as the most important king of the pre-Viking era. We know, alas, only a few scattered remnants of the relationship between Offa and Charlemagne. <laughs> At one point we know that someone, who may or may not have been the Archbishop of Canterbury, accused King Offa of trying to convince King Charlemagne to topple Pope Hadrian. And while the accusation is very probably untrue, it speaks a lot of Offa's perceived power, as opposed to his real power, that people thought he could do this. And it was that accusation that actually led Offa to send delegates to his Frankish counterpart and for Charlemagne to send letters explaining everything to the Pope, claiming it was all lies. And the Pope in question ended up sending letters to investigate and finally papal legates to travel to England to investigate the whole thing. And understand, the Isle of Britain in this era was considered a somewhat backward and wild land, the kind of place that had not seen a papal legate 
visit in over 200 years. So it's worth noting that Offa was granted enough respect that Charlemagne and the Pope treated him as a peer, a status unique of all the rulers of any English kingdom up until that point. Now let me be clear, Charlemagne was a magnitude more powerful than Offa ever was, and his campaigns were significantly more blood-soaked and more continent-deciding and more important than anything the Mercian king could ever do. But in one area, the two men were equal, it seems. And that was the matter of international trade. The Frankish kingdoms seem to have been the principal location of the European-born merchants who sailed across to Ludenwick. And Ludenwick seems to become the principal port and origin for those Mercians who sold items on the continent. And how do we know? Well, in 790, the two kings fell out, a feud partly born out of the failures of written communication and partly born out of the fact that Charlemagne was a descendant of Charles Martel, which meant that arrogance was an inherited genetic trait that was indicative of his family. Anyway, <clears throat> the result was that Charlemagne retaliated by effectively placing a trade embargo on all Mercian goods coming into, well, Frankish lands of Europe. Effectively an embargo upon all the goods being exported from Ludenwick. Offer retaliated by doing the same. Yes, that's correct. The first British-European trade war dates to about 1,232 years ago. Forget the EU. How dare those Carolingians close their ports to good, hard-working Mercian merchants, I say. While this embargo only lasted a few years, before their correspondence suggests they established or re-established a rapport, we know that both men were still annoyed at one another, and that trade remained a bone of contention. We know Offa wrote to Charlemagne, informing him that one of the principal exports of the Frankish kingdom, Rhineland lava stones, a hard black stone used to grind grain in the preparation of flour, was seeing a lowering in the quality of such products, with the stones being unfit for purpose. Charlemagne responded to this complaint testily, by saying that, isn't it odd that the woolen products being bought from Mercia and coming into Europe recently were also equally of a shoddy nature and low quality in return? This spat wasn't just manifesting itself as the two kings besmirching the craftsmanship of the goods their nations sold. Offer complained that merchants from Ludenwick and other Mercian ports were finding themselves ill-treated in Frankish ports, perhaps even attacked. We're not too sure. The Mercian king reminded his Frankish peer that the main reason why merchants paid so much taxes direct to the crown was that by doing so, foreign merchants came under the crown's protection. You get the impression that Offer was reminding Charlemagne that if his traders could come to, say, Ludenwick and be under Offer's protection, Ludenwick's merchants should be able to sail to Francia and expect to be treated the same way. Charlemagne rather peevishly responded by reminding Offer that the protection was given to those merchants 
who actually paid the duties and customs charges they owed said king, under whose protection they claimed, and clearly leaves the impression that maybe those Mercian traders, those men who ran ships out of Ludenwick, were being perhaps a little bit too familiar and thinking that they maybe did not have to pay their full fees and such things. Certainly, we actually know that the King of the Franks ordered an investigation into the actions of a supposedly over-friendly Frankish port official who seems to have been suspected in allowing the Mercians get away with such acts. But for myself, if you want to see just how important Ludenwick, London, was to King Offa, and how being the principal trade port of such a mighty king was in turn to change the status of this market and its role, one need only consider the implications of a single coin. The coin in question is a gold dinar, a coin minted in and around roughly the year 773 or 774 of the Common Era. It was minted by the first caliph of the Abbasid dynasty, Ibn al-Mansur, it was the principal coin of the great Muslim caliphate, minted in Baghdad. Now these Arabic coins were used across Europe. Their purity and their quality was acknowledged by all, and the wealth of the caliphate kind of made them almost something like a universally recognized reserve currency across the many nations of the continent. And we know, not guess, but know with absolute certainty that Ludenwick was tethered to the tendrils of trade that actually spanned the globe here in the 770s because of that coin. Because we know, not guess, that within a few years this coin was in circulation in Mercia. Having presumably come here via local merchants, and those merchants were most probably based in Ludenwick. It was a striking coin to look at, most of all because it had a unique design feature compared to any other coins existing in Europe at the time. It had no images upon it. It was a Muslim coin, so there would be no likeness of Caliph al-Mansur. Rather, this coin was covered in the Shahada, the Declaration of Islamic Belief. There is no God but Allah the one without equal, and Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Of course, if you didn't read or write Arabic, and if you knew nothing about the faith, then you wouldn't know it said that. The coin just comes across as something striking, beautiful, unique. It's something powerful and authoritative. Which is why we think Offer of Mercia really liked the coin. He liked that coin so much, he ordered his mint in London to create his own version of it. We know then that in London, a new type of gold coin was struck. On one side, it bore just two words in Latin, Offer Rex, King Offer. But on the other side, a beautiful jumble of Arabic script, only it doesn't actually say anything in Arabic. It clearly comes across as someone 
trying to copy the design feature without knowing it was an actual language. And we know, not guess, but know, that offers golden coins with Arabic design features were quickly integrated into that sophisticated network of international trade, as versions of that coin have been found as far away as Rome. Now, some say the coins were minted as a gift to the Pope, and others that they were minted to be acceptable to merchants from the Caliphate, but either explanation misses the real point. These Mercian coins stand as proof that even back in the 770s, London was part of a wider world, an international city even then, an emporium with traces of its links to Baghdad and to Rome seen in the physical remains found to this day. Dark Ages. There never was a dark age. Indeed, this leads us to the part of Offa's reign which was to see the largest and most profound change upon London over the long centuries ahead, because Offa was the king who introduced the widespread adoption of coins as the economic bedrock of the economy of the city. Coins changed everything. They allowed currency, a much more convenient way to gain and maintain your fortune. Now, the traditional approach taken by many historians is that Offa was emulating the ideas of Charlemagne by introducing widespread currency into the Mercian kingdom and surrounding kingdoms. But some historians have suggested that in actuality, Offa was the innovator and Charlemagne was the one who copied him. As we mentioned in the last chapter, coin-based currency had been around for a while, with both Mercia and Northumbria introducing simple coins into circulation in the years leading up to Offa's ascendancy. But what Offa did was to change the game dramatically. He produced high-quality coins of good purity and on an industrial level. Now, estimates of how many coins of various denominations Offa introduced during his long period in power, they vary. But most historians agree that he produced no less than 2 million coins that went into circulation in his kingdom, with some estimates saying that number could have been five times greater than that. At first, the coins bore his likeness, or the likeness of his queen. But towards the end of his reign, they just had the words Offer Rex on them. At this point, it was almost a brand. So recognisable was the quality of the coinage he was producing. And this was to have a secondary impact. As out of the four principal coin mints in England at the time, the one in Ludenwick seems to have been the most prolific. In order to be that prolific, that meant there needed to be a large quantity of gold and silver available to mint in Ludenwick. And the creator of such coins, the moneyer, would have had to have permission to make the coin dies that bore the king's likeness. And they would have got that permission, provided they cut the king into the process with a percentage of the raw bullion going to the crown. Producing your own coins elevated offers power and influence his prestige and his wealth. The moneyers made handsome profits out of creating these coins to be used across the nation, 
and Ludenwick would have seen its economy finally bury the remains of the barter system that had remained in place since Roman times. It was a place where they were making money. The town of Ludenwick was being transformed before the eyes of the residents. It was now a Mercian centre of international trade. And it was also working within an increasingly sophisticated mercantile system that makes the one that they were using during the reign of Ethelbald seem crude and simplistic by comparison. It's a place where people could buy anything the town could sell, a self-perpetuating system of trade and profit. Understand, Ludenwick wasn't the capital of Mercia, far from it but it was quickly becoming the richest part of that kingdom and it almost became something more. See, the Isle of Britain, while Christian, had two principal centres of the Christian faith, the two archbishoprics of England. York covered the north, Canterbury covered the south. And while I don't really have time to explain the whole backstory to this, we do know that Offa wanted the southern archbishopric under his control. The problem was, for much of his reign, he and the Archbishop of Canterbury detested each other. And so, at a great synod in the nearby town of Chelsea, Offa responded to this situation by creating a third archbishopric, based in Lichfield, under his direct political control. Some historians, however, maintain that this new Archdiocese of Lichfield, which was actually created by merging together bishoprics from both Mercian territory and, controversially, East Anglian territory, this was not the original intention. That what Offer had wanted was that Ludenwick should be the central location of the southern archdiocese. And this desire to make London the centre of the Christian faith in England carried on after Offa died. His successor, King Senulf, wrote a letter to Pope Leo in 796, quote, humbly imploring, unquote, the Pope to replace both Canterbury and Lichfield with a new southern archdiocese based in London. He pointed out that two centuries before, that had been the original intention, and that Canterbury had only been chosen because the men of Kent were greedy gits. Now, as we covered in a previous chapter, this wasn't strictly true. It was mainly because the East Saxon overlord of Ludenwick at the time was being terribly, terribly pagan, but Senwulf hated the guy ruling Kent at the time, and he was on a roll. Now, had the Pope agreed with him, London would have become the home of the Christian faith in England, and the Archbishops of Ludenwick overseen all aspects of church policy. Alas for London, the Pope rejected the idea, and in 803, at the Council of Clufuso, Senwulf agreed to abolish the See of Lichfield and restore Canterbury, quote, to its former state, unquote. Never again would Ludenwick, or London as it became, come so close to being the centre of Christianity in England. But this talk of Christianity does allow us mention one final legacy of offer that we must add at this point. And it was 
a simple devotional act of faith by King Offa that was to have profound implications upon the history of the city of London. In 785, the elderly king decided he wanted to establish a new monastery. His preferred location was an island on the River Thames. The island was further downriver from the busy port of Ludenwick. It was a rough triangle of land, one side facing the Thames itself, while it was separated from the mainland by the smaller River Tyburn, which split into two and ran north and south, creating this little island. The island was covered in brambles and thorns, hence its name, Thorn Island or Thorny Island. It was a rough place, prone to regular flooding from the two rivers that surrounded it. Supposedly, if the tide was right, you could cross the river here, which allowed the road into Kent and on to Dover, travel to this exact place and then pick up on Watling Street on the other side of the Thames here. I mean, it's worth also saying this was the location where we found the Neolithic remains of a possible jetty or a bridge, as we mentioned in chapter one, right? Now, antiquarians maintained that upon Thor Island had been built a shrine to Apollo and that there had been a church dedicated to St. Peter here supposedly since the second century. True, untrue, it's not actually important. What was important was that it was here that Offer of Mercia decided should be built a monastery, which he granted to the Benedictine Order of Monks. It was dedicated to St. Peter, as, after all, upriver there was already a church dedicated to St. Paul in Ludenwick. And slowly, those hardy monks cleared the land and began constructing a place of worship here on this little island. In time, this church would become an abbey, and around it would emerge Westminster, the centre of power for the later vast British Empire. As we saw recently, this church is still the spiritual heart of Britain, with the lavish funeral service of Queen Elizabeth II taking place within it. But all of this lay over a thousand years in this story's future. For now, St. Peter's Abbey was just somewhere you would pass if you decided to sail beyond Ludenwick and downriver into the heartlands of Mercia, the final legacy of the great and mighty offer of Mercia. It is a common misconception to believe that some things that happened later were inevitable in their past. In the centuries to come, from now on, we're going to see a bevy of kings emerge from Wessex, all of whom are trying and at times attaining the coveted title of King of the English. But for his part, Offer never once ever sought to be King of the English. He never dreamed about some nonsensical place called England. No, Offer was King of Mercia. And based on his use of the title and his single-minded determination to secure his kingdom and the dynasty he was producing, had his wildest dreams been fulfilled, this island would be ruled by Mercia, and that would be the primary title of its kings. 
but it was not to be. Offa's reign had been blood-soaked, and his ruthless and tyrannical nature went hand in hand with his glory and innovation. And so, for the sake of our story, we come to a close in about the 850s. Ludenwick was growing in size, scale and sophistication as well as importance. It was the principal trade port of the nation of Mercia and was clearly important enough that there was an attempt to make it the centre of the Christian faith in England. It was somewhere. It is now clearly recognisable as a place that was to become London, entrepreneurial, trade-based, with links not just to the land it exists in, but to the rest of the world. And yet three things were about to happen that were to entirely change the fortunes of Ludenwick forever. The first was Mercia, which up to this point had been sophisticated, strong and organised, but now begins to suffer dynastic splits and a fracturing of its previously strong political class. At the same time this is happening, its neighbour, Wessex, began to get its act together and unite under a series of dynamic kings. And that by itself would be the herald of great change. But most significant of all, while this was happening, something new had arrived. The Vikings were just about to explode onto the history of London. And they would change the city forever. Thanks for listening. I have to say, I'm trying to keep the lengths of each chapter down into manageable chunks. But do let me know if they're too short or if you're happy with them. If you can please leave a like or an upvote, this will cause my podcast to get new listeners and I'd be amazingly grateful. Apparently, despite being only a handful of episodes in, the story of London has charted on the Apple Podcast charts. It's in a lowly position somewhere in the 230s, but I'm amazed it's even done that. And for that, I thank the people who have been supportive of this project so far. The next part is due next Tuesday. And yes, we're now into the era of the Vikings. And it's about now the history of London starts to get way more interesting. And way, way, way more violent.